I hope that you know that every minute, every day of your life, you need faith. You need to live and operate in an ongoing faith in God. The Bible even tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Which means that if you want to please God in anything that you do, you must be living in faith. You must be trusting in Him. But there will be certain times in your life where you will particularly be challenged to exercise your trust in God. And those are the kind of moments where you ask for your other brothers and sisters in faith to pray with you, pray for you. You know what those feelings are like when you're about to make a big decision. Maybe it's a major employment change. And you ask people to pray for you. Hey, pray for me in this. Well, well, why? Do you you need faith more right now than you needed 10 minutes ago or earlier in the day? Well, in a different way you need it. Because what you're facing requires a harnessing and an exercising of that faith. It may be those moments where you're on your way to the hospital and you, before you head out the door, you quickly text those brothers and sisters that you know and say, please pray, this thing has happened. Why? Because you're going to need a special and particular kind of faith then. A move. Something dramatic that's changed in your life that you're going to need some special attention. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why is it, though, that God works things out this way? Why does he work things out so that it's not just grab a calculator, punch in the facts, and out spits the answer? Go do this. Why is it that God often sends his people into the ambush? Why is it, rather than God sending an eternal king to come into a palace, he sends the king to come in a manger? It seems like an absurdity to people. Why in the world would God command a military strategist with a great and mighty military force to just march around a city seven times and blow horns that walls would fall. Many times in our own lives, I I suspect you may have experienced this, but throughout the biblical account, we see God tell people to do things that in the eyes of the world look like just total foolishness, look like folly. Why does he work out this way? The answer to that question is actually really simple, I think. I'm just going to answer that question with Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, a very familiar verse perhaps to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. God works things out in this way so that you will learn to trust him more than yourself. Him more than the strategy. Him more than the data. You and I need faith. And we need faith especially in those moments when things seem like they're insurmountable. When the variables in a particular circumstance seem to be stacked against you, that's when you're going to need to draw on that faith even more. We refer to these sometimes as tests of faith. 
and for good reason. You and I need to grow in our trust in God. And what's more, those around us need to see our faith. When other people around us watch us, when people in the world watch believers trust in God, it makes much of him. So your kids need to see you take steps of faith. The believers in your life need to see you take steps of faith that it'd be a prodding and encouragement and a stirring up for them to do the same. And non-believers in your life need to see you act out in faith so they can see just how big your God is. So God has designed 10,000 circumstances in your life to draw your gaze back to him. It's as though God says, you want faith? You want to be a witness? You want to make much of me? Boom, here's some uncertainty. Those moments are orchestrated by him to grow our faith, to grow our trust in him. And here's something we need to be cognizant of. We need to, we need to be reminded of. There is a limited amount of time that you and I have to display faith in God. We're a procrastinating people. We put things off to a later day. We say, someday I'll grow spiritually. Someday I'll deal with that discipline. Someday I'll grow in that area. But there is a limited amount of time that you and I have to display faith. And by that, what I mean is that this lifetime is all we have to display faith in God. We... As eternal beings, God created us to live eternally. All human beings will live somewhere forever. You know, people say that nothing lasts forever. Wrong. People last forever. Forever. For all eternity that you exist in the presence of God, you will not be able to demonstrate faith the way that you can today. Why? Because quite simply, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. And when you are standing in the presence of the Lord, you see him. Faith is no longer needed. It is no longer necessary because, to, to use the words of Horatio Spafford, who wrote that famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Because there will come a day where you will not have to exercise faith. You won't have to believe in Jesus. He'll just be there. You get it? And so for our praise and glory of God for all of eternity, we want to leverage the moments that we have now to demonstrate that faith in the times of uncertainty, in the times of the trials and tribulations we won't have in eternity. We want to leverage these moments now. But you need to be well aware that sometimes your greatest obstacle in exercising faith is not in all the variables out there. It's not necessarily in the difficulties of the circumstances. 300 soldiers against an innumerable horde? The real problem there is often not in those circumstances, but in us, in your propensity to doubt and to fear. In other words, the greatest hurdle that you must overcome to exercise faith in God is in you. Not in all the things out there. 
So the Bible not only encourages us to be men and women of faith, but it even gives us godly examples to follow. The Bible's super helpful in this. In Hebrews chapter 11, the text that we're in today, we see the author give us a list of Old Testament saints that he's drawing upon to show us, look at the great faith of these saints. Look at what they did in their demonstration of faith. It is by faith that each of them are being commended. And so we're, giving, we're given examples of godly men and women that we may follow those examples. Throughout this entire section, in Hebrews chapter 11, we've been encouraged to have faith, to have faithfulness, to fear God more than men, to do what God says to do even in spite of the circumstances, in spite of what it seems we ought to do in those moments, according to earthly and fleshly wisdom. The author here is picking great moments in Hebrew history that highlight faith of the Old Testament saints, and he's picking them sparingly, but they should be a great service for us. Last week, we uh, walked through yet another portion of the life of Moses, a famous Old Testament character. And I've been reading through this particular paragraph for the last, I think, three or four weeks. It's just verses 23 through 28 of Hebrews 11. Uh, Last week, we only got through one verse. This week, we're also going to do just one verse. And the reason is not because I'm trying to slow the the, the advance or, or trying to drag my feet forward. The reason is quite simple. These singular sentences, these short little verses, refer to enormous, significant events in history that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on talking about because of how huge they are. So we don't have to try to go slow just to read through the events of what's taking place and to get this context. Additionally, the author is writing to Hebrew people, people who know the Old Testament, and he's assuming they're... They're following him in the storyline and understanding it. So we might do well just to make sure that we're seeing things in the same way that they saw them so we can gain the same kind of benefit. I want to go ahead and read through verses 23 through 28 again. Just this paragraph uh, talks about the life of Moses. And then I'm going to pray. And then we'll go back through and just hit verse 27 today. And uh, we're going to jump back into the Old Testament And one more place in the New Testament. I'll try to help you follow me where I'm going because there's three places in the Bible that refer to this story. And so we're going to read each of those portions of them to get the greatest context and then unpack it. That's the idea. So if you have your Bibles, let's read verses 23 through 28 out loud. Um, I'll read that out loud to you. You can follow along and then we'll pray. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith as we even read through this text, that you would help us to understand what was meant for the first audience and what is meant for us today, why this has been preserved through the ages. Lord, I pray that you would help my words be true as I preach through this this morning, that we would apply these things to our lives now, that 
we'd bring great glory to you, that we would lift up your name, that those around us would watch our faith to see how we live and respond to the circumstances around us with our eyes fixed on you, and that that would produce many others doing the same thing. Because, Lord, you deserve worship from every mouth in this land. We love you, Lord, and ask that you would help us do this this morning in Jesus' good name. Amen. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, just quick to remember where we are here. This is Moses who's preparing in this text to leave Egypt. He's about to head out of Egypt. Just prior to this text, we saw that Moses was born into a time of great trial, great tribulation uh, in the days of the Israelites. The Israelite boys were being killed off so that the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, would not feel so uncomfortable about the size and the power of the Israelites living amongst them. Moses was supernaturally protected from that death by uh, the activity of his mother. His mother made a little basket, put him in the, in the Nile River. Uh, he ended up not being killed, but even adopted into the household of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as a son. But as he grew up, he gets to about age 40, and he decides to go out and to visit amongst the other slaves that are Hebrews. He knew he was a Hebrew. He goes out there to go do that. And that kind of picks up where we're going to start reading this morning in the Exodus account. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can follow into Exodus chapter 2 with me, or you can just read along, because I'm going to put the verses we're reading through up on the screen. This is back to the original story being told in the book of Exodus. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So this is the setup. Again, it's a reminder. We actually read through this text last week, if you were with us. Really significant story in history. Moses, one of the godliest and most significant characters in all the Old Testament, was a murderer. Even if he was trying to protect his own people, God does not approve of an individual killing another man in this type of situation. This wasn't just an act of self-defense. He looked left and right. He knew what was going down, and he intentionally killed the man and buried his body because he knew it was wrong. And the thing became known. Moses gets afraid. See that, See that right there where it says that? When Pharaoh heard, or just before, then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. People know about this event. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Moses then fled. That's the setup to what's going on here. I want to go ahead at this point and quickly read yet another accounting of this same story that'll give us a few more insights. And that's the one told in Acts chapter 7. This is when Stephen, a disciple of Jesus, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, probably a deacon in the church at the time, he stands before the Sanhedrin and gives an account for his beliefs. And in so doing, he tells them of these historical accountings of the Old Testament. 
And he gives us a few insights that we don't quite get here that probably were a part of oral history, certainly were inspired by the Holy Spirit in the moment, trustworthy then. He tells us a little bit more. I'm going to put that up here too. Acts chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, 23 through 28, or 9 here, excuse me. When he was 40 years old, that's Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. I want to pause there for a second because we see a couple insights here that are distinct from what we saw in Exodus 2, or at least that add to our understanding of what's going on there. It tells us a bit about Moses' motivation. Why did he do this? He thought that he was doing a good deed and that the people being protected would be grateful for his help. That's really obvious what's going on here. He assumed, he figured that in defending the oppressed man, he supposed his brothers would understand God was giving them salvation by his hand. That's what he thought. He maybe even thought that they would see this as a providential circumstance. Now, quick something so we don't stumble over some language here I want to make sure is clear. Salvation is the word being used here. And that's the same word for salvation that's used all throughout the rest of the New Testament regarding eternal life granted to us by Jesus. Salvation. That's the way that, that's, that's talked about. But the word has a much broader use than only eternal life kind of salvation. It's any kind of rescue. It's any kind of saving. It's any kind of deliverance. It's used in that way as well. It's often used to refer to somebody being rescued by enemies, for example. In fact, the exact same word uh, that's used in Hebrews chapter 11, talking about salvation, is used in, uh, earlier in the story of Noah. The author writes that Noah constructed an ark for the salvation of his family. Exactly the same word there. This would be kind of like if you were drowning and a lifeguard dove into the water, dragged you to safety. It could be said that he or she saved you. And no one would think that you were denying Jesus as your only savior. It would be a a kind of rescue. So Moses thought that he was offering that kind of rescue, that kind of saving that the man being beaten by the Egyptian slave master would be grateful that he stepped in to save him, to provide that kind of salvation. And perhaps that the Hebrew slave might express his gratitude by keeping the whole situation confidential. Well, surely he saw it. He's not going to tell because he's got to be grateful for what I did. Or perhaps that if by chance word spread at all, that Moses would be considered a hero amongst the Hebrews. Hey, did you hear about that guy came in and he protected ours? That is not what happens. But they did not understand. And this is what Stephen continues to tell what happens in the story. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort... Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. Moses was not received here as one of the Hebrews, was he? His hope for being seen as a hero was quickly extinguished. Surely they'll think I'm a hero. No, who do you think you are? 
Come down off of your ivory tower down here to visit amongst us peons out here, the slaves. Well, you're up there. Who do you think you are? You're a prince and a judge? We know you killed somebody. Clearly, there was not the gratitude he expected to receive. So this is the background. This is a little bit about the historical context of what's happened. Told in those two places, Exodus 2 and Acts 7. So let's jump ahead now again back to our Hebrews text and see what it is that the author of Hebrews is saying right here. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, does that seem odd to harmonize with the other two texts we just read? It does to me, and many commentators throughout history have wondered how to harmonize this statement here in Hebrews with the account in Exodus 2 and Acts chapter 7. Remember, in that chapter, it's said that after he realized that word about his murder of the slave master had spread, Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. That's the exact wording. So this has led commentators to think that this refers to the Exodus rather than to Moses fleeing to Midian. But him leaving Egypt here actually refers to that. Because not only does the text specifically mention that Moses was afraid, and that seems to be a primary motive for his fleeing, but in the following chapter in Exodus, when the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, he doesn't go, the savior of your people is here. I'm ready to go. It's not what happens. When he's commissioned to confront Pharaoh, Moses repeatedly tries to get out of it. No, no, don't send me. Whoa, Lord, I, I, I can't do that. Please, please, just send someone else. That's how Moses responds. So it would appear that Moses was a bit afraid of the Egyptian king. So some have thought, well, maybe then this refers to the Exodus account. Still, others would say, this would be the only place so far in the telling of Hebrews that the chronology would be mixed up, that the order would be out, that it would say this, and then it would tell an event that preceded the Exodus, namely the Passover event, which comes one verse later. And so, maybe this is the departure from Egypt, uh, the departure to Egypt uh, at the beginning, from Egypt to Midian, the first leaving of Moses, his fleeing because of the king. And still others think that perhaps the author is intentionally conflating the two. Just talking about the fact that Moses leaves Egypt and his disposition in so doing. So which is it? I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I'm inclined to see it as the first leaving for a few reasons. Not least of which it ends with the fact that there is an invisible God in which Moses is trusting and much later, he will see things visibly that will be a leading of the people out. So I, th I think it's probably talking about his first leaving. Let the reader decide. But here's the point. And this is helpful to do. If you ever run into texts like this and you're like, I just don't know. I'm not sure how to, how to view this. Which one of those two events it could be referring to? I'm not quite sure. You need to ask yourself, what is the author wanting to convey to us? That that's what we need to understand. Because whether this refers to the first departure out of Egypt or the second departure out of Egypt, what is being commended is explicit. 
that Moses is being commended for not being afraid of the anger of the king. So whether this is the first or the second, this is true. He was not afraid of the anger of the king. And he operated contrary to a fearful disposition. You and I would do well to consider this. That this text commends Moses for not fearing the most powerful man alive. We ought to inherit the same courage from our ancient God-fearing brothers and sisters. I want you to think about our day with me right now, just to, to put some of this in context and how we might apply some of this today. There is much talk today amongst Christians in the West about us facing persecution from our increasingly godless governments. It's no surprise. We talk about it here regularly. In the chat groups I have, it comes up quite common, commonly. I suspect that you've uh, interacted with that conversation quite a bit. It's for good reason. And I think it's actually appropriate for Christians to think and to plan and to strategize about that potential in, my, with, with that potential in mind. That could happen. That could be on the horizon for us. But... But in all of that, we must never fall into the error of fearing the anger of the king. This is what distinguishes between Christians who view potential persecution from non-Christians who are just afraid of losing their liberties. We don't prep like the world preps. Because our disposition is to be one of courage and not fearfulness. Oh, no. Things are getting bad. We should be afraid. No, things are getting bad. We ought to be reminded to not be afraid. We don't think like the world. We ought not do that. We ought to look into history. We ought to see these commendations and be encouraged. Now, I want to I point to something here that you might have noticed, even just today as I read through this. It is incredibly interesting, at least. I would say significant, that in this single paragraph about the life of Moses... Not fearing the king is explicitly mentioned two times and implied two more times. So literally, in, in this entire telling of the Hebrews 11 roll call of faith, the author makes it very clear that it is commendable for a believer to not fear the king. You might remember verse 23 that kicked off this section begins by saying, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The author made a specific mention of that. In verse 24, it mentions Moses' rejection of his royal title as son of Pharaoh's daughter, which would have been a repudiation of the throne of Egypt. And then in verse 28, which follows this one, Moses is applauded for his part in the Passover event that would bring massive devastation to every home in Egypt, even up to the home of Pharaoh himself. These believers throughout history, and those being commended here, honored and obeyed God to the utter disregard of their wicked civil rulers. And that is significant. Throughout history, many of our brothers and sisters were compelled by their faith in God to not obey and not fear their kings. And not because the kings 
and the emperors and the governors and the presidents weren't doing things that were atrocious and potentially fearful, but because even in the face of things that could be truly devastating, we are not to fear the kings. We know it's true in history, and we have texts like this that encourage us to admire a fearless disregard of a king. But some of you may well remember that the Bible does command Christians to fear kings. I don't know how your mind works, but I kind of, I don't know how it's cataloged in there, but I just know whenever a truth uh, statement is made, a, a truth claim is made, I run it through the grid, like Bible verses and passages, and wait, is that, is that, does that comport with truth? Is that accurate? And you might be like me right now, and you're like, wait, 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 Rich, you just said, you just said, we are to admire those who did not fear the king, but we're commanded other places to fear the king. And that's true. So what do we do? Well, first, let me, let me read a passage, a couple of them that tell us we should fear kings. Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. This is what Paul writes. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. See that? Be afraid. So what do we do with the seeming paradox? Even in the Old Testament, it's made clear. Proverbs 24, 21 says this. My son, fear the Lord and the king. And do not join with those who do otherwise. I think the answer has been incredibly obvious to many Christians throughout history, but it seems, unfortunately, to be less apparent for modern Christians in the West. Civil rulers have been authorized by God to perform a limited function. You've got to know this. Civil rulers have been authorized by God to perform a limited function. They are to punish what God calls evil and praise or protect what God calls good. They may not try to determine what is good or evil. They may not operate beyond their God-given jurisdiction, i.e. in worship or in your household or even in business for that matter. They may not arbitrarily declare that innocuous and victimless activities be punished as crimes. They have no God-given authority to do so. Whenever a ruler is operating beyond their God-given jurisdiction or operating within the God-given jurisdiction in an abusive or wicked way, we are not obligated to submit to them. That's why we can be told to fear the king when we sin and why we must not fear the king when he sins. And that's how it works. If you go out and murder somebody, you should be afraid of what will happen when the cops come knocking on your door. They are to execute justice in that. But if you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, you are not to fear the king, no matter what he says. 
Now, the Bible does command believers to submit to our civil authorities. And so we should be eager to do so and eager for our civil authorities to align with what God has said is right and wrong. That we may live submissive, quiet, peaceful lives. But much wisdom and much discernment will be needed to know when and how we may or even ought to disobey when the time comes. However, one thing should be certain for us. If we live our lives in a way that honors the Lord, we are not to fear the king. So is persecution possible in the future? Absolutely. I actually think that it's likely. It could be right around the corner. If not for us, for our children. I don't think that takes a conspiracist to say that. We've got to get this straight. There may come a day in our very near future where proclaiming truth from this pulpit, literally reading words out loud, even without any commentary, could be illegal. You telling your kids what is true in your own home could be considered hate speech, dangerous, and illegal someday in the future. That's very possible. But we are not to operate in fear of that. Yes, strategize. Yes, plan. Yes, prepare. But operate as the saints of old did, who were commended for their faith in God and were not afraid. They were not driven by their fear of kings. If you are doing what is right before God, you have nothing to fear. That's amazing. And I think the world can take stock of this and look at Christians and go, man, you guys are different than all those other crazy rebels out there who just want to push back against their kings and emperors, their governors. You're darn right we are. Because we know the true king and we are in submission to him. And the Lord will equip us for this. But we must be trained for it. We must exercise our faith today so that if great acts of faith are needed in the future, those muscles will not have atrophied. And how is it that Moses had overcome any fear in his own heart? The, The very natural potential fear of the great king of Egypt who wanted him dead? How would he overcome that? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's what our text says. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This word invisible here is used to refer to God or to his attributes on several occasions in the New Testament. Romans 1 refers to God's invisible attributes that the whole world knows, even if they refuse to acknowledge them. 1 Timothy 1.17 refers to God as the king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God. And the point here is that Moses trusted what he could not see more than what he could see. You see that? This is just like it says at the beginning of Hebrews. I I read this earlier. Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And that's what's going on. Moses is being propped up and pointed to as one to honor and look to and be an encouragement to us who without seeing had faith. There's a clear contrast being made here between Pharaoh who was the earthly, visible ruler, and the true, 
ruler who was invisible or unseen. The whole point of this chapter is to encourage us to be faithful. And the author offers that encouragement by pointing to the faith of these Old Testament saints who lived long before the time of Jesus. That is the whole point of this chapter. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Joseph, Moses here now. From a strictly material point of view, it would have seemed foolish to believe that things would work out the way that they did. Yet they endured as seeing him who is invisible. But the point here is, you and I have seen this invisible God. That's the point of Hebrews 11. It's not that you guys are just as in the dark as they were. No, the whole point is that we are not in the dark in the same way they were. Colossians 1.15 just says it straight out of the gate. I love this, this particular whole portion of Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And his invisible plan, they didn't know what it was, they didn't know how it was going to work out, has been made clear to us. In fact, the author of Hebrews will already have said that he's been publicly portrayed as crucified. This will say this in Galatians, this will say this in Romans. We'll see this over and over. Listen, we actually have an image of this Jesus. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has already been hammered in Hebrews. The plan laid out, we get to see. You and I, in a similar way in the Old Testament, have set ourselves against the Lord because of our sin. We have been separated from him because of our wickedness. He set the rules. He created us in his image. We have turned against him. We deserve his just judgment and his wrath. And all the way up through the Old Testament day, the faithful people believed that God was going to provide a way for salvation. And they didn't know what it was. They didn't know how it was going to work out. But they knew it was coming. He promised that he would find a way. That he had a plan. And salvation to those in the Old Testament came by them believing that God would do something someday. But you and I live after the plan had come to fruition. Because we live after the time where God demonstrated his great love by sending his son to this earth to die the death that we ought to have died. Was put on a cross, mocked, spat upon, beaten, scorned. That whoever who believes in him can have eternal life. He raised to new life, and he will raise us to new life as well if we have saving faith in him. You need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. This is how you become a, a Christian, a believer. That's why we say that. That's what a believer is, someone who believes that God has provided a way for salvation, and there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. That's how we get saved. And we can have eternal life with God forever true, ultimate, final salvation through his perfect son. These faithful saints did not know the name of Jesus like we do. They did not know what the image of God looked like. We do. They did not know how salvation would work out here with the particularities. We do. By the time that Jesus came into history, the wisest and smartest people throughout all the Jewish nation assumed just some king would be born and that he would destroy the earthly enemies and that would be salvation. They misunderstood who it would be and how it would come about. But you and I don't have that misunderstanding because we get to look back 
with a level of clarity, it's a great blessing to us. If they who did not know how God would fulfill his promise, who knew nothing of the cross and the resurrection, persevered in their faith, how much more should we? From a purely human, visible perspective, it looked like Jesus had lost at the cross. But that plan that looked like nonsense in the eyes of the world was the way that God would save his people. And so we ought to endure in our faith. This is how those moments tend to go in our lives. You and I may look at certain circumstances with our eyes and not understand how things could possibly work out the way that God has promised. But we are to endure with our eyes fixed on our Savior. You and I need to do what takes faith. We need to exercise faith in God. We need to build up those muscles. And all those little moments that God gives us, the little ones that we don't think are quite that big yet, and then the big ones we're asking for other people to pray for us. We need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we get the great blessing of not fixing our eyes on the some mysterious plan, the mystery. Paul says multiple times it was the mystery of the ages. They didn't understand how the whole plan of salvation was going to work out, how the Gentiles and the Jews would come together into one people of God. They didn't understand all that. We do. We are to look back at that and see the glorious face of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And all the things that we do today that demand faith are to give us a reminder of the attention and affection that he is due. And so often, we kind of want to make things happen on our own. We want to we force it to go down. A lot of Christians, I think, kind of live like motorboats on a big sea. We see something we're supposed to go do, and we try to effort in all of our efforts to get there. And sometimes the Lord just wants us to operate, knowing that we need him to push us where he wants us to go. Put up the sails. Let him take us where we need to be. This is so evident to us in so many areas of life. We see kids sometimes who need to just trust. Mom and dad know what's best. Sometimes we need to look at other believers in our life. Sometimes we need to trust other believers in our life, and their counsel is helpful. But all that pales in comparison to the faith and trust that we're supposed to put in God. If you and I want to be witnesses in our neighborhoods, if we want to grow in our honor and worship of the Lord, we must expect he's going to give us opportunities to have to demonstrate faith in the face of uncertainty. And how are you to do it? With your eyes fixed on Jesus. Because no situation that you and I are going to face will look more uncertain than the uncertainty of the cross. No situation that you and I are going to face will look more dire than the cross appeared. And so we have our eyes fixed on him. Let's pray today that we can utilize, think back on these particular awesome stories, true stories, to see how people who had yet to see Jesus knew that they were to have faith. How much more should we? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are headed as a people into a a season that is unknown to us, just like all people before us. But it feels a little bit to us as uh, it's, it's less certain. It's more unknown And Father, beyond the the great big picture situation we all find ourselves in, I know that the faces and the the families and the people here and those who will ever hear this, Lord, are facing individual challenges and tests of faith in their life. Father, I pray that you would utilize those things to teach us to look to your Son. 
to remember what you did through him, to build our trust in you, not in ourselves, not just to run the data points, not just to try to figure out how to solve the problems, but Lord, to yield to you and give you great honor and glory. Help us to leverage those moments here, Father, as we will not be able to leverage them in eternity. Help us to look to your son in such a way that we are reminded that you work things out in a way that is contrary to how the world thinks things should work out. In fact, the world thinks that the message of the cross is folly, is foolishness. Even the way that we are to preach the truth looks like foolishness to the world. Father, help us to demonstrate our faith in these ways so that you would build and grow your kingdom here and more and more people would worship your name and likewise demonstrate the faith that you want for us to show. We ask for your help in doing all this. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.